I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, continuing our sermons, a series of sermons on these first two chapters. And on this Pentecost morning, we come to Acts 2, the verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia? Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. So far, the reading of our text, the Word of God, after the preaching in response to the message of the gospel, we'll sing about the outpouring of the Spirit in hymn 47, the stanzas 2, 4, and 5. Holy and loved people of God and our ascended Lord Jesus Christ. What a day that must have been, don't you think? The day we've read about in our text, the apostles and all the followers of Jesus, they had been waiting and praying for their Lord, whom the apostles, you recall, had witnessed ascending into heaven. They had been waiting and praying for the Lord to send them the Holy Spirit. For ten days now, they had patiently prayed and waited in the quietness of their upper room, says Luke, when all of a sudden on Pentecost morning, their senses are overwhelmed. There's a loud noise. There's a strange sight before their eyes, and then there's this incredible sound of languages coming forth from their own tongues. The noise of a great wind. Just think of a, of a hurricane and how loud that can be. Surrounds the 120 believers in this house. Then they see the sight of flames, flames of fire over the heads of one another, all the believers. And they hear the sound of foreign languages erupting from out of their own persons. It's like spiritual fireworks have gone off all around, and even within 
these 120 believers all at once. It, it would have been an incredible, unforgettable experience this Pentecost morning. But what is it all about, really? What does it all mean? And is this something that Christians today should be looking to experience as well? Are we meant to repeat this experience, as some think? We know all these things have something to do with Jesus pouring out His Spirit, as He promised, but why does He do it in this way? Why so many phenomena coming at the same time? And then, why did the Lord send these phenomena? And then, why this lengthy list of nations? Why does Luke spend only four verses describing this incredible outpouring of the Spirit, but nine verses detailing the reaction of the crowd and spelling out in detail the countries of origin? I mean, what difference does it make where these people came from? So there's lots of questions about our text. We hope to answer at least some of them this morning as I bring you this word of the Lord. The Lord pours out His Spirit to renew Israel. The Lord pours out His Spirit to renew Israel. We'll see the mighty signs of this as well as the mighty effects of this. Well, Luke begins this, his description of this amazing event with a very ordinary statement, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This would be a reference to the entire group of 120 believers that Luke has been describing in chapter 1, verse 15. This would include the apostles, the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, plus Mary's other sons, and a wider group of believers Luke tells us in chapter 1 they had been together. They had been fellowshipping. They had been devoting themselves to prayer in anticipation of the Spirit's coming. And at last, He comes, Pentecost morning. Well, what is this thing called Pentecost exactly? Luke just mentions it as if everyone would understand. Well, Pentecost was a feast day given by God to Israel in the days of Moses. Now, if you look for the word Pentecost in the Old Testament, you won't find it because there it is called by a different name, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Weeks. You might know if you have studied any of the feasts of, of God uh, commanded in the books of Moses that the Lord commanded seven feasts to be celebrated at particular times of the year. In order, the, the first of the year was Passover then right on its heels, unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then the Feast of Firstfruits. They were really quite closely joined together chronologically. And then there's a gap of 50 days, and that's where you get the, the idea of Pentecost. After 50 days came the, the Feast of Weeks. Seven weeks plus one day gives you 50, and that's why it came to be called Pentecost by the time of the New Testament. Pentecost is the Greek word for 50. Later on, after Pentecost, there were three more feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths, or otherwise called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, some other day, God willing, we'll, we hope to come back to the significance of all these feasts. We, we can't get into them this morning, 
and how they foreshadow the ministry of Christ. But for now, let's just realize that because Pentecost was one of the, the largest and especially joyful feasts of the year because they, they were celebrating the ingathering of the harvest, and because it was a special day of, of rest on which no work was to be done, not only were these 120 Christians keyed up to celebrate God's grace, there were thousands upon thousands of Jews doing the same in the city. This was a, a welcome holiday. People would look forward to Pentecost. It was a holy day, and that's why Jerusalem is filled with great crowds of people soon to be on their way to the temple. So that's the, 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 the setting. There's this, there is always expectation on a holiday, isn't there? But doubly so for the Jews as Pentecost was upon them. Now, before this group of 120 can leave their house and, and join the crowds on their way to the temple, which is what they would have done, something unforgettable happens. Verse 2, Luke tells us, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Luke is very careful in his description. He says, The, the sound came from heaven. That's another way of saying it came from God. The, the Jews, and, and Luke took over that habit sometimes, the Jews to preserve the holiness of God's name and not to say it over much so that it would become commonplace, they would find roundabout ways of referring to God. Like when James, we had that in the letter of James, when James writes that about the wisdom from above then we understand he's not just talking about, he's not talking about wisdom that comes out of thin air or from somewhere in the ether up there. He's talking about wisdom that God sends from above. Well, so too, when the sound comes from heaven, it's a sound sent by God from heaven. And even more, brothers and sisters, it's not just a sound, it's the sound of God's arrival on the earth. It is not just a noise or, or something like a wind, but this is actually God coming to His people. How do we know that? Well, you'll remember from other parts of Scripture that God is so holy and so glorious and so magnificent that no sinful human being can see Him as He is in His glory and survive. God is just too awesome for that. You can think of Moses, one of the most respected of the Lord's servants, when he once asked to see God's glory, that God responded that man shall not see me and live. Can't be done. Moses could only catch a glimpse of the, the tail end, so to speak, of the Lord's passing glory as the Lord passed in front of him. So what you find in, in the Scriptures is that when God does come close to His people in a very personal way, when He wants to come down from His dwelling place in heaven and, and a, draw near to His people, He can't show Himself in His full glory. He has to take a different form or He has to come in certain symbols. And here you can think, you can think of when the Lord appeared to Abram, He, he appeared to Abram as a man. You can also think of how the Lord appeared to Abram in that vision as a smoking fire pot. Well, that was the Lord in the smoking fire pot. He was 
there in the, the, the symbol of the smoking fire pot. And it's very much like the wind. If we think of the wind outside, you and I, we cannot see the wind, but we know the wind is there from the sound we hear or from what we see, the, the tree branches bending, the leaves blowing down the street. So people would know that God is there. He's actually present in front of them by what they heard and what they saw. There would be signs of God's arrival. And the first sign Luke mentions is sound. And notice how Luke puts this rather carefully. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. So it wasn't actually a wind but it was a sound like a wind. It made everyone in the house think of a violent wind. That's what it sounded like, and yet there was no effects of a rushing wind. You heard the sound but didn't feel a 100-mile-an-hour wind sweep you off your feet. Nothing was flying through the air, which otherwise would have been the case if it had been a real wind. This in itself would have been a, a clear message to the occupants of that house, that something highly unusual was taking place, something not natural, something that must be divine. We hear wind, but nothing is stirring. Just like they see fire, but no, no one is getting burned. It was a message, God has entered the building. And especially the apostles we saw in a previous sermon, already had the Holy Spirit at work in them, illumining their minds, they would begin to make the connections, the associations between this apparent wind and the appearance of God, specifically the Spirit of God. There were connections in the Old Testament. It actually starts with the very word and the idea of wind itself. It's also translated, uh, the word spirit and wind are actually in Greek and Hebrew, the very same word. So depending on context, it could be translated wind or spirit. It could also be translated breath. All those three things, you can see the association, I think. Well, in, in the biblical languages, those three concepts were very closely aligned. And God used the image of wind and the image of breath, the idea of wind and breath, to communicate His presence at times. You can think, for example, of, of God sending a mighty wind to dry up the earth after the flood, or how God sent a mighty wind to part the Red Sea so that the Israelites might go through that. That, that would have been the Holy Spirit active in, those, in that wind. And the Holy Spirit is also very much connected with breath in Scripture. Think of how the Lord... When He created Adam out of the dust of the ground, he had, a, he had a body that was there before Him, but no breath in the body. And then it was God who breathed into the, the lifeless man the breath of life. That would have been the Spirit doing that. The Spirit of God imparts life to mankind, even to the animals and the plants, as Psalm 104 says. When you send forth your Spirit, they are created plants and animals and even people, and you renew the face of the ground. And all of those connections that are there throughout the earlier part of the Old Testament, they come out very, very strongly in that, 
valley of vision, Ezekiel's valley of the dry bones, where he is commanded to prophesy to what? To the breath. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And and a little bit later, the Lord explains that this breath is the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit bringing life to the dead. So for the apostles, and perhaps also for the others, but at least for the apostles, the penny is beginning to drop as they hear the sound of this, this divine wind and yet, of course, feel no gusts around them. They were getting the message, our ascended Lord is at work. He's pouring out His Spirit just as He said He would. And if there was any doubt about this divine wind, that doubt was banished by the next mighty sign, verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Just like with the sound of the wind, it's not actual fire that appears, but Luke says, above each person's head there was something, there there was a tongue that looked like fire. So it wasn't fire, but it looked like fire. We've got wind, but not wind. We've got fire, but not fire. This cannot be a natural phenomenon. This is the almighty making himself known. Just like the fire in Moses' burning bush didn't consume the bush, like the fire that came down on the top of Mount Sinai, this is the Holy One coming down to earth to talk to his people. For isn't that what the tongue represents? Tongues are above each of the believer's heads. Tongues represent the gift of speech, the gift of communication, language. Just as we saw recently in James 3 that the tongue is a powerful tool which can be used by humans to speak ill or to speak good, so the tongue on this Pentecost day they appear as licks of flame above each person's head and the message is God has come, the Lord Jesus Christ who is God has come down in the person of His Spirit. He's come down to to live in each of His believers with the purpose of speaking to all His people yet to be gathered in. Instead of God's voice ringing out from Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, you can read about that, God's voice will now ring out through the apostles as well as through Mary and her sons and through the women and through the other disciples. In other words, the whole church is going to be speaking God's message, not just the twelve. Not just the twelve apostles spoke in tongues or received the Spirit, but the way Luke tells us the whole church gathered in that house had the tongues and spoke in the languages. He says it in verse 4, they were all filled with the Spirit. And this, brothers and sisters, is, is the lasting gift of Pentecost that we need to be aware of and make use of. Your God, your great Savior and Holy Lord, the one you, you cannot see, we cannot see in all of His glory, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, together with his Father, he has come down to us and taken up full-time residence inside of you, inside of me, through his Spirit. Jesus had already promised this. Back in John chapter 14, he said this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And here it comes. And we will come to him and make our home with him. My Father and I, we're going to come to you and make our home with you. That's Pentecost. Not just for those 120 believers, but for all believers ever since Pentecost. Paul affirms that in Ephesians 1.14. Each believer, he says, is sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you came to faith, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So that's the number one takeaway from Pentecost that you and I need to have, that every true believer has received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You and I have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is not some gift that comes at a subsequent moment, at a later time, to, to people who, who prove to be or think they prove to be especially spiritual. No, the Spirit is given to all God's people without partiality, the women and the men, the younger and the older. The prophecy of Joel is going to tell us that next week, the Lord willing. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, the, the, the miracle this is? Like, it's, it's incredible. The, the, the mighty God of Mount Sinai, you should really read Exodus 19 today, okay? Let me encourage you to do that maybe at lunch. The, 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 the sight before the Israelites in Exodus 19, the, the mountains of Sinai is crashing with God's presence. There is smoke, there is fire, there's a loud trumpet. The, the mountain is quaking in its boots because God has come down to this mountain. Well, this same God has come down to you, to me. He's living inside of us. The God of the Red Sea, and the God of the cross, the God who ascended up on high, as we have seen a few weeks ago, He has now come back down to earth to make you and me His holy temple, His dwelling place. Man, we, we ought to be incredibly thankful for that and, and humble on account of that and then incredibly joyful and hopeful. God is truly with us like never before. Of course, the Spirit of God was busy among God's people before Pentecost, but Pentecost, it's a game changer. Now God lives inside of us permanently. We are His temple. That was never said of God's people before Pentecost. Not just an occasional influence of the Spirit in us, but a daily force for change dwelling in us. For if the Holy One the God of heaven and earth lives inside of us with all of His power, with all of His grace, with all of His love. How can that not affect you and me? How can that not affect the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act? How can the, the presence of the Spirit of God in us not bring success against the battle, against the remaining sins we have. Think of the, the sins in your own heart, the des sinful desires you've got. 
What sinful desire can you point to is more powerful than the God of heaven and earth represented by fire and this violent wind? What character trait of yours or mine? You pick it. Short temper, lack of patience, speaking without thinking, quick to judge without the facts, delicate ego that's easily bruised. You can go on and on. Take, take your, your worst character trait. Which of those instincts can trump the sanctifying, life-changing force of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in each of us? Brothers and sisters, praise God. Praise God for the Holy Spirit's presence in your body and pray that you may seek the help of His Spirit and the comfort and the encouragement of a spirit in every struggle you face, in every battle you face. He is there with you for it all. These mighty signs, they represent a mighty God who has come down to us and creates mighty effects among his people. For maybe you notice that these signs, fire and wind in particular, they have two, at least two sides to them, two aspects to them. We might ask, why does the Holy Spirit come down with the sign of, of a wind sound and a, and a tongue that looks like fire? You know, it was different when the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus at His baptism. We read about that in Luke 3. He came down in the form of a dove. But here, it's, the symbols are fire and wind. Why? Why not come down as 120 doves and rest upon the believers? The dove, of course, is a kind of a, a bird. And bird imagery is used of God in Scripture as well as, as we saw, the wind and the fire. Think of how David in the Psalms prays to God for God to spread his wings over him for protection, how he constantly finds refuge in the shadow of God's wings. The Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 is described as hovering over the waters, and that, that verb is used for eagles hovering over their, their young. And then when you think of the dove itself, well, we know from the days of Noah that Noah used a dove after the flood was over. He sent out a dove to see if there was dry ground to be had. And, and when the dove finally came back with a leaf in its mouth, the dove became a symbol of a new beginning. So when Jesus came in His earthly ministry and the picture of a dove descending on Him was made visible to the eyes of those who were there, it was clear that the Spirit of God was coming down on him, and it was also symbolized that God was beginning a new work. This was like a brand new start for God's people. But now we don't get the dove. We get him, we get wind, and we get fire. Different symbols for a different time, a different chapter in God's story. What's the fire all about? Well, fire has two aspects. Fire can burn and consume so that there's nothing left. It can destroy. But fire can also purify. 
it can burn up the, the bad or the evil or the dross and leave behind something that's pure. Same with wind. If you think of, of wind as breath, well, breath can bring new life, as we saw in the vision of Ezekiel. But a violent rushing wind like a hurricane, well, that can bring destruction. These Pentecost images indicate that the Spirit of Christ is going to bring about at least these two effects, either life or death, either refinement or destruction, either the breath of life or it will be the kiss of death. And those effects are going to come through the proclamation of God's Word, through the tongues, as God's people would hear the, the message of the tongues and how they would respond to those messages, they would go one way or the other. And it all begins with the Jews. Remember how the Lord Jesus, before Pentecost Day, was very careful. We saw that last time. He was very careful to replace Judas, who had betrayed him and left his office, the Lord Jesus, through Peter and the others, He established the twelve apostles again as the foundation stones of the renewed Israel. This was the Lord's renewing work. First, the foundation had to be rebuilt, and it was. Now, on Pentecost Day, the Spirit goes out, and He starts gathering in stones to build on the foundation. Well, where does He go first? He goes first to old Israel. That's where the renewal starts, not with the Gentiles, but with old Israel. Luke tells us who his audience is. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the, of the, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was speaking them, uh, hearing them speak, rather, in his own language. So the first hearers of the Pentecost message, the, 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 the hearers who heard these multiple languages were Jews, old Israel. Now just think about that for a moment, that the Lord Jesus would make that His target audience. Because what had old Israel done? Old Israel had rejected Jesus, hadn't they? The Lord Jesus had come in the flesh. He had preached to them the kingdom of heaven for three years. He had proven that He was the Messiah through His miracles, through the raising of the dead even. But the nation as a whole rejected Jesus, even nailed Him to the cross. And yet, upon His ascension to the throne of heaven, the first people that the Lord Jesus sends the gospel to is old Israel, the covenant people. Do you see the grace in that? Do you see the mercy in that, brothers and sisters? That's our God, ever merciful, ever filled with grace. And if you go back in history, this people of Israel, they had a long history, didn't they, of rejecting God's overtures, rejecting God's outstretched hand. But here comes God again. Here comes the Son of God again extending that hand of salvation on Pentecost Day. And if you look at Peter's sermon, which we hope to do, the rest of Acts 2, Peter will be addressing Israel. We actually read a verse of that at the beginning of the service. 
men of Israel. He does it just like John and Jesus in their ministries. He calls Israel to repentance. The Holy Spirit will will speak through Peter a word that will act like fire. He's going to call them to repentance, refining some and but bringing others condemnation, those who harden in their hatred of the Christ. That's what happens at the end of our text in verse 13. The crowds of Jews, they're marveling at what they're seeing. They don't understand it, but they marvel and they, they wonder and they question. But look at verse 13. There's another group in the crowd. What do they do? They mock. They think the 120 must be drunk. They must have had a, quite a party the night before. They must be drunk with wine. Mockery. Mockery is the same thing these same crowds did to Jesus himself as he hung on the cross some 50-plus days earlier. And they're doing it again to the messengers of King Jesus. And yet still the first word from the throne of the king is to the Jews. That's what this list of nations is all about. Luke mentions 15 nations here in our text. And people have been trying to figure out what the deal is. Like, is there some kind of pattern to this list? Does Luke go from east to west or west to east or something like that? Or does he have language groups in mind? And scholars have parsed it all out, but they really can find no pattern. Others have thought that this list of nations was an indicator that the gospel was going out to the Gentiles now. Well, that might be in the background, but if you look carefully, there's actually no Gentiles present to hear these tongues. It's just Jews and some proselytes. Gentiles, they will later hear the gospel. Luke will tell the story of how the gospel comes to them later in Acts. But right now, the first focus of the Spirit is on old Israel. Just according to Jesus' command in chapter 1, verse 8, first Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And that's what unites this list of 15 nations. Each of those 15 nations have Jews living there. That's the common point. And they've got lots of Jews. There are pockets of Jews who were actually born in each of these nations, in the east, in, in the north, in the south, in, in the west, all around the land of Israel. They grew up speaking the languages of those Gentile nations. And then we have to ask, well, why were they born there? Why weren't they born in their own land, in, in the land that God gave to His people, the land of promise, Well, it's because God had scattered Israel out of that land centuries earlier. There had been the exile to Assyria, and there had been the exile to Babylon. And many of them were absorbed by the Gentiles, but a number of them kept their communities inside those lands. But at the same time, most of them chose not to come back. There were Jews in all these Gentile places, and even when the opportunity was given to come back, most stayed where they were. Well, these communities of Jews, of Israelites in all these surrounding lands, they are covenant breakers. 
They are the offspring of covenant breakers, survivors of old Israel dispersed all over the place, people who, spiritually speaking, should have been written off long ago, people who actually were twice dead, once because of their ancient rebellion centuries earlier, and more recently because this crowd of Jews had participated in the crucifixion of Jesus. Peter will put that to them very shortly in chapter 2, verse 23. So you've got Jews, you could say, that were lost in the dispersion, and Jews that had rejected Jesus. That's the makeup of this crowd, and yet to them the Lord Jesus comes with His gospel of, on Pentecost Sunday. To them He speaks a word of grace. For think of how this would have come across to these Jews the apostles, when they were speaking, and the others, when they were speaking in, in languages, Luke tells us that they were, in verse 11, they were telling the mighty works of God. Now, what do you suppose they were talking about? What mighty works of God would these 120 believers have been on about as they spoke in these foreign languages? Well, of course, they would have been speaking about the arrival of the Messiah. They would have been speaking about Jesus of Nazareth, how He was the Christ, how He had suffered and died, how He had been raised from the dead, how He had ascended into heaven. These were the mighty works of God. Of course, Peter will, will outline all of them in his sermon, but they were already speaking these things to these Jews. Now, just put yourself in the shoes of these Jews from all these foreign lands, knowing your history, knowing where you've come from, Hearing now what God had done in Christ the Messiah and hearing it not just in the language common to Jerusalem, but hearing it in your birth language. Hearing it in the language of your exile. Hearing it in the language of the Gentiles which you had been forced to learn growing up in those Gentile places. Hearing it in the language that showed the disgrace of your past. And to hear God speak in that language that the forgiveness of sins was yours because of the work of Jesus of Nazareth, that would have overwhelmed them. They had not heard the gospel in their own tongue yet. They would have understood our God has remembered us though our sins had scattered us among the nations. Our God is not ashamed of us but is calling out to us the prodigal sons and daughters, come back home. That would have been the impact of the message to them. And not only does the Holy Spirit through these 120 believers speak the gospel in such a powerful way to these, these Jews, but He breathes new life into these dead Israelites in fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. What a vision that is, eh? The valley of dry bones before Ezekiel represented the Israelites. And God is careful to say all 12 tribes in their state of exile. That would include the earlier exile to Assyria, where all the 10 tribes, which actually never came back in any, in any kind of number at all, and also the two tribes that were taken off to Babylon in Ezekiel's own time. God's people as a whole, they were spiritually dead. 
They were like a bunch of corpses dried up on a valley floor. But through what seems like a totally foolish, useless method, through the act of preaching to bones, I mean, can you picture that, brothers and sisters? It'd be like me going up the hill here and preaching to the cemetery at the church, the United Church up the hill, and expecting people to come out of their grave. I mean, you would say you're nuts. Can these bones live? Asked the Lord. And Ezekiel says, Lord, only you know. Well, the Lord knows His own power. And those bones do live. The Holy Spirit breathed life into those old bones. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does here on Pentecost Sunday. Through the many native languages of the scattered covenant children of God, He impresses upon their hearts the saving work of God the Son. And by the end of that single day, 3,000 of them will come alive in faith. The bones are coming off the valley floor. Luke 2.41, or Acts 2.41, the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit will blow new life into the dead souls of this ancient covenant people and so start the work of renewing Israel. There's going to be 3,000 stones built on the foundation of the apostles that day. The Holy Spirit did it for those people. He does it still. For all of God's chosen people, for you and me too, he spoke to the Jew first, but later he was sent to speak to the Gentiles like us, people who are equally dead in sin. And lo and behold, many Gentiles also came to life and put their trust in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you too have been raised up from the dead just like the bones of Ezekiel's valley. If you know that to be you, brothers and sisters, then rejoice this Pentecost day and every day and pass on what you've heard. Remember, all 120 were speaking the mighty works of God. You can do that. The Spirit is in you. Speak the mighty works of God in Christ so that others may hear and the Spirit may transform them. And there may be a greater resurgence yet of people being brought from death to life. Amen.